In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Hi listeners, Hunter here. On this episode, you're going to hear me on location at the Australian Psychological Society's Health Psychology Conference, which was held in Glenelg in Adelaide last weekend. It was a great conference and it showcased some of the great work that's being done in health psychology in Australia. So health psychology covers two broad areas, health promotion, which is efforts to promote positive health behaviours and design public health programs. So think quitting smoking, improving fitness, reducing risk factors for disease, that kind of stuff. And the second area is clinical health psychology, which is the work that I am involved in week to week. And that's helping people cope and adjust to illnesses and treatment, things like cancer, and also treatments designed to improve the function or reduce the symptomology of various conditions, think like pain or gastrointestinal conditions. And at the conference, we had some great presentations on both those topics. On today's episode, you'll hear me interview Dr. Grant Dewar, who is a psychologist from Adelaide, and he presented on the therapeutic use of self-forgiveness, particularly to respond to the adult experience of adverse childhood events. It's a really interesting chat and uh, should be of interest to therapists and also to anyone who's interested in how therapy can help with experiencing negative traumatic events. We do talk about how traumatic events can affect people, so trigger warning to anyone who may be sensitive to those topics. I've included some links in the podcast description for some of the stuff that Grant talks about, so make sure you check them out. As always, if you like the show, it'd be great if you can take a minute or two to rate us on Apple Podcasts and even write a short review. If you have any questions or suggestions for myself or for Amy, you can always contact us at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com or you can check out our website twoshrinkspod.com for any episodes, descriptions and all sorts of other stuff. Okay, so without further ado, here is the interview. Enjoy. So uh, we are here in a probably somewhat overcast day at Glenelg in South Australia in Adelaide uh, at the Health Psychology Conference and I'm here with Dr. Grant Diwar and um, I've hoodwinked him into telling me about some of his research and some of his clinical practice that he's doing. So welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks Hunter, it's fantastic to be invited along. So yes, um, my research. Um, Look, I started off with... um, I'll just give you a part of the history of how I've got to be here. I'm a late life starter in psychology. Yep. So I started studying psych when I was 48. Yep. And I was inspired by the work of Dr. Peter Strelin, who does a lot of work on forgiveness. And I was particularly interested in the area of self-forgiveness. So anyway, I became a, a health psychologist. I did my... Um, I got in and did a graduate diploma. That's where I met Peter. Did an honours program, then did a master's program, and then became a practising psychologist. So, with uh, Peter's work on forgiveness, I was pretty inspired by it. And I had my own journey around issues of deep lack of self-forgiveness. My father had committed suicide when I was 15, and that sort of really screwed me up. And that's one of the reasons why I went to university quite late in life. Yep. I had had good jobs and that sort of stuff, but I had 
some real problems with my own personal adjustment about carrying this burden around his death. So like a, a guilt, shame, yeah, kind yeah, of guilt, scenario. deep, deep shame, disgust, self-hatred, the lot. You know, yep. lot, lots of suicidal ideation myself for mm -hmm. lots of years. And it was when my great wife Jan basically said, "We've got to do something about you." And we went along to some counselling and saw a really good psychologist who helped me unburden some of that stuff. That's when I got sort of free of that, particularly being able to, to do it in a non-judgmental and open way. So you've had a first-hand experience of Absolutely. the importance of forgiveness, That's right. that kind of thing. That's right, but I sort of hadn't really put it together as, wow, there was a, like a method that you could sort of do this stuff through, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it came up incidentally in the, um, in the sessions that we did in counselling, and while it was, you know, my particular stuff was dealt with very skillfully, it was only when I went to university saw the work that Peter was doing, I thought, oh, wow, this can be done as like an in intervention. Yep. So your, your title of your presentation here at the conference is Responding to the Adult Experience of... Ad adverse Childhood Events. The adverse Childhood Events, yeah, through self-forgiveness. Yes. So uh, unpack that for us. Tell, tell okay. me about that. So my self-forgiveness journey was to do the work with Peter. I, I enrolled in a another master's program to do clinical psychology and to do um, my PhD research. And my PhD research was to implement self-forgiveness because a lot of the research around forgiveness and self-forgiveness had been around offence towards others. Mm -hmm. My particular issue was what happens if you haven't actually offended against anyone mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you're holding yourself accountable for something you've done mm. and so it's, it's a very common set of problems actually like mm. so I, like i've worked with a lot of women who've been sexual assault mm -hmm. survivors mm -hmm. uh, victims and one of the, that problem is this guilt and shame Correct. about about what they've gone through. That's right. Um, and even like I work in oncology, and a lot of people ha like have a tendency to blame themselves for their, an yeah. erroneous tendency to blame themselves for their cancer. Yeah, well, that, it's interesting you say erroneous because the issue is what's in error here, and if it's so common, perhaps there is a very common process of thinking yep. in which we're actually trying to get control over a chaotic universe mm, mm. and if we can't control that chaos well we can at least do something about controlling ourselves yep. yeah and you see this in eating disorders mm -hmm. you see this in a whole variety of obsessions compulsions various types of um what we'd say is being inappropriate responses to the world yep but if if we then place them in another perspective and what inspired me here particularly was there's a author called Decca Aitkenhead mm -hmm. and she talks about her own experience of the loss of a husband in a really weird drowning accident. No one's fault in particular. He didn't know how to swim well. He, he's trying to save their son from drowning. Mm -hmm. The son was saved but he drowned mm. and in a very strange way. And she found that for herself the experience of self-blame actually enabled her to anchor herself instead of feeling completely at a loss as to what to do mm, mm, it's like, in this chaos. Yeah, so you, you, even though it's detrimental, yes. like we can see that it's detrimental, it asserts, the, the function of it is that it asserts control. You, you feel stable within the world. How do we make sense of bad things happening? We can blame ourselves. It, that, that's the right. idea. And so, and so we have things like 
people that we love commit suicide. Bad accidents happen to us. Mm -hmm. We can be assaulted. We can be raped. We can have terrible illnesses in ourselves and in our family. And those things are, are not our fault objectively. No. But how do we explain where we now are in the world? Yeah. And I think we have, we have this need to explain our experience. And so self-blame becomes part of that process. So we might not be... The, the problem for us, and this is where self-forgiveness comes in, might not be in what's happened to us initially, mm -hmm. but what we are then responsible for, how we are responding to that within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this self-blame stuff is... It might be understandable why that's happening, but it's not working. And so this is where self-forgiveness, as I practice it, has, a, I think, a beneficial role to play. I think it's probably a universal experience. Mm. So from my point of view, self-forgiveness is simple, but it's not easy. Mm. We can't just let ourselves off the hook. It doesn't work. We can't say, oh, well, so what? Yeah, because it, it, it strikes me, brings me back to my clinical training mm. and one of our lecturers she said it doesn't matter how harmful the belief system is even if you point it out if you've got nothing to replace it with no one will that you can't do it like, that, well, i know i shouldn't blame myself but if you can't you know change the channel that's right it, it, it all has some sort of function yeah and in the absence of an alternate more useful function we will we'll go back to that function so what did you do? Did you do research or...? Yes, did a lot of plunging into the literature around self-forgiveness. Mm. But my particular area of practice is I use a lot of what's called acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call one of the third wave psychotherapeutic interventions. And what it does, it uses an underlying theory called relational frame theory, mm -hmm. which is basically a theory about how language actually works. Mm -hmm. And there's basically three things that we do in language quite automatically. And one is we easily relate one thing to another. But what is unique in human beings, for example, I, I am thirsty, I need water. And what happens is that we can then quench our thirst with water. Now, the, the example might be we have a reverse explanation also that happens quite automatically that other life forms don't have. Mm -hmm. So while thirst might be solved by water, we also know automatically that water solves thirst. Yep. Yep. And that's actually an, a miracle in creation that we actually make that, that, that two-way link. Now, what we can also do is we can also add meaning to those sort of transactions. So we're sitting here looking at the beautiful Glenelg Beach yep. and, and there's wonderful water out there. Uh, I went for a swim just a couple of days ago in water that looked like just like that. And while it looks really cold, it's actually quite warm. It's quite nice at the moment. <laughs> That's what everyone said. But also we know that despite that being a fun place to be, water is also something that not only quenches thirst, but going back to Decker Aikenhead's work, mm -hmm. it also kills. Yeah. And so we can automatically make other sorts of connections with things. Yep. So water becomes both something that can save life, but it can also take life. Yep. And this is the incredible way in which we transform our experiences in language 
in ways that can be quite powerful and, un and unexpected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we can use this both ways. So with regards to the work on self-forgiveness, yep. we can have all sorts of events in our life which we can interpret as being personally responsible for. Yep. But we can also use the same skills that we're doing those automatic transactions. We can also step back from those skills and observe our use of them. Mm, mm. And then we can say, okay, and this is the work of self-forgiveness. Once I've consciously understood how I'm transforming my experience of the environment, like I'm looking at Glenelg Beach and I'm thinking of a loved one that's drowned. Yeah. If we can understand that there's a whole lot of stuff going on that makes that connection to this point automatic, we can also have other responses which we make automatic. Yeah. And, and self-forgiveness can be around, okay, I was not responsible for my husband going in the water and drowning. Yeah. I am responsible, however, for blaming myself for his drowning. Yeah. And I realise that when I see water right now, okay, let's, and Decker's experience was she had children that she was responsible for, children that loved to swim, yeah. children that wanted a full and active life, and she had to do something about dealing with that fear, with that distress. Yeah, I can choose to be anxious around the water and not let my children swim, Correct. or I can choose to do something a little bit different to that automatic That's right. process. I can recognise that I have the fear, yeah. but I can also recognise that my children love swimming and it's beneficial for them, and I'll teach them better techniques about how to get out of trouble. Yeah by perhaps enrolling them in surf life saving or yeah. something like that. I, th I think the difficulty for people is knowing that they're even doing it. I Correct. Think, you know, there's a, Correct. Knowing that they are, respond in a particular kind of way and this is how they're doing it. You know, and I think there's levels to that. People will uh, not have an awareness that they do it or they will, have, they will say, oh, no, I don't do that. But they will be That's doing right. it in a, yes. in, a, in a different way. This is like it's a, it's they're sort of aware of like oh I'm a bit anxious about this stuff, but it doesn't really affect me. But it, yeah. but to other people it will be glaringly obvious. Yes. And Hunter, as you've so wisely observed, once the the, the process is in train, yeah. unless you replace it skillfully with something else, it will continue being in train. Mm -hmm. And as a, uh, as a therapist, I've also seen that this requires a lot of diligence, some real work and a lot of care because people, once they've actually learned something new, can also see, wow, why did I keep that original belief for so long? And then they blame themselves for and that. And then they blame themselves for that. Yeah. And so I've had major problems. I do a lot of work with drug and alcohol mm -hmm. and people will say to me, this seems so simple and straightforward. Why didn't I do it 10 years yeah. ago? And then can get really depressed and anxious and can relapse. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've, yes. I've, I've had that clinic, very much that clinical experience of working with someone who had worked in the mental health system and I pointed out that they had a diagnosis of trauma after taking some time to work that out. And then there was this thing of like, oh, why didn't I do anything about it? You know, oh. you, you can knock down one thing, but there's another thing that pops back up. Yes. Yeah, and yes. so you have to like... You almost have to look at that even from a meta yes. meta perspective. Absolutely. So I propose that there's basically about seven steps to get going through the process of working through self-forgiveness. Okay. So take me through them. Well, basically, one of the first, and this is not meant to be a manual. It's not meant to be strictly in these step orders because you can step into it at any place. Okay. But there's seven, if you like, principles. Yeah. 
One is being able to name a story that's really got a grip on us. Mm -hmm. And it might be, I'm the person who let my husband drown. So we name the story and we start exploring it. Yeah. Then there's a process of stepping back and taking perspective on that story. And it might be a simple thing like, okay, if I'm my best friend, would I talk to myself like I talk to myself? Yeah. So, you know, these are, these are pretty standard techniques in psychological mm-hmm. therapy, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, but there's but, a structure. But amazingly powerful. Like, yes, like, yes, I, yes. I, like we're only in the yeah. early stages of it, but my clinical experience has been that frequently that approach can open a door Correct. in a way that you would think it's so obvious, but it's not. Correct. And once we t- step back and take perspective, we start to loosen up how hard and rigid that story is for us. Yes. Then out of that, I ask people to start looking at the values that might be in the story, both in the black stuff, mm-hmm. in, the, in the worst possible stuff, and in the best possible stuff. Yep. So for example, let's look at death. Okay, what value is there in someone dying? Mm. And you think, wow, that's a hard question to ask. And I wouldn't put it like that in the first instance, but you know, when people are prepared to face that question, it's really useful in that, okay, if someone that we love dies, we don't want anyone else to die like that that we love. Yeah. So our value is preservation of life. Mm-hmm. Our, our value is something like making the most out of life. Our value is loving the people we are with mm-hmm. as much as possible when they're with us. Yes, yeah, so is it, is it one part is how can we prevent that from happening yes. again? Yes, yes. Another part is, put it in a different phrase like that, post-traumatic growth kind of yes, thing, or, what, ab- like, or what, like the way Yalom would talk about becoming aware of the fragility of life and making the most of it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So there's values that are even in the darkest stuff that yeah. we experience. Then the process is to use, you can use a variety of in- interventions to further loosen up mm-hmm. and put in place what we need to do to deal with this story in a way that frees it up. And so once again, acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's you know, six parts of being in the present moment, transcendent perspective taking, getting unstuck from stories, getting open and more accepting of our experience, and then doing what we value and taking committed action towards those values. Yep, yep. All those elements then start coming in to start, start to consolidate that values-based framework that we're uncovering. And then at that stage, it's about sort of saying, okay, are you actually prepared to enter into a process of self-forgiveness? Okay. And is that, is that sort of as blunt as that in, in the process? Well, or, it, or is it once, again, once again, all this you know, has to be in the therapeutic context. Yeah. And it depends on where a person's at in their life. As I said, this, you know, a person may, be, may have been through many rounds of therapy before they get to me. Mm. It's quite common yep. that there'll be different processes in people's lives. So the question will come forward in different ways at different times. But nevertheless, at some point, a person has to actually make a decision to actually forgive themselves. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Breaking Bad, but there's a, there's, oh. there's a great, I think there's a great scene in it where there's a group therapy program mm-hmm. and the main character in it was is in it and he's saying, you know, how can you tell me to forgive myself? Like, you've never done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, you can forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. And the group leader, like, discloses that he killed his son accidentally. Yes, you know, yes. like, and 
you know, it's this really, it's a very, very confrontational uh, style, which probably would have suited that yes. that setting. Yes. But I think with other ones, you know, there's this this gradual like walking people to the road, down the roads, and saying, you know, like, how's this working for you? That's that right. Kind of and, and 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 once again, the, these are principles yeah. that have to be applied compassionately in the context of the person's experience. Mm. But nevertheless, at some point, there has to be a decision point to forgive. Mm. Right, and and then the process is is to take action in line with that that forgiveness. So, so what would that look like? Well, what I most commonly ask people to do, mm-hmm. and they w- would have probably started doing it by you know, a, a couple of sessions of therapy. I'd be asking them to actually keep a life journal for the rest of their life okay. to actively reflect on experiences. Uh, I would be saying, okay. If you have done something where you've basically you know, taken yourself down in some ways, what sort of restoration are you going to do? Mm-hmm. If you have cut yourself off from people that you love or some sort of experience because you can't forgive yourself, are you going to walk back into restoration of that part of your life? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's having actions that actually align with that element that you're forgiving yourself for. Hmm. Okay. Is that an easy step for people to no, sort of no, con- con- This is this is all so it sounds simple really, but not easy. Sounds interesting in the abstract, but I'm thinking like, oh, concrete. Like, how how do we go about doing that? Like, yeah, that well, as difficult. I said, you, you, and once again, using Decca Aikenhead's example, she actually went back to this place. It was she was a, a a holiday island in the Caribbean where they had a a permanent place, mm. and she hadn't uh, visited that, but she knew she had to go back. She had to talk to people who were locals that had tried to rescue her husband, to rescue her children. She took her children back to the area. She engaged in appropriate grieving processes. Mm. She entered into a process of reconciliation with herself, with her children, and with the people that she loved in that area that had supported her. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the word that comes to mind is healing. Mm. What do we need to do to heal? And I think, you know, if you do CBT, I was trained CBT through and through. It was... It was just slightly before ACT came through. But even still with that, you know, you can kind of get a little bit lost in, you know, this is the symptom, this is the, the manualised approach, or this is the thing and these are the thing. But often I think in therapy there is a meta-journey around learning how to be compassionate to ourselves. Correct. Like in learning that we are fallible. That's right. And, you know, and like, like standing up and, and going, you know what, I am fallible, Yes. But I'm. But it's okay for me to continue to yes. do this. And and one of the things that I highlight for people who are willing to enter into this process is the word compassion comes from the Latin com is to be with, mm-hmm. and passion actually means suffering. To be with suffering. And it's actually to be with suffering in in this stance. And the thing is, and this is once again where the the usefulness of some of the act metaphors, for example, it talks about the self being three parts. Okay. There's the process of living, which is breathing, eating, functioning, doing, and so forth. Yep. And then there's our story. And so, for example, at this conference, we've got the story of being psychologists and researchers. Yep. And that's a useful story to have here. Yeah. But that story isn't quite so useful to have when we're home. No. no. Yeah, I'm a parent, and I'm a this, and I'm a that. Exactly. And... So, so, you know, it's, it's getting the story right at, in the right context. But what it also talks about is the sense of ourself being I am mm. and that we are 
what we are as a container of both process and story. Hmm. A, a nice metaphor is, is awareness of our breath. Yes. Our breath has been with us from the moment of our birth. It will be with us until the moment of our death. And we know that there will be that continuity of experience. But right now we breathe mm. in this present moment. Mm. And yet the breath will be continuous in all that experience. And it also fluctuates. It's deep. Exactly. It's, it's, exactly. it's shallow. It's fast. Exactly. And so if, we, if we use this experience of I am, that we are the container of all our experience, then we have a, a place in which to start functioning from all sorts of different flexible modes of action. Mm. Okay, we, 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 we build flexibility into this experience. So you're, you're not just one story, you're multiple stories. Correct. And then if you make people aware of those multiple stories, then you've That's got right. more opportunity to, to act. Is, to, yeah, yeah, is that correct. correct. So, so the thing is, Decca could still go to that beach. She could be the grieving widow, but she could also be the loving neighbour. She could be the engaged mother, rather than just being the widow in black. She could be the person having a swim on a hot day? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so the, the process of self-forgiveness then requires this functional action that restores ourselves in a particular way. Mm. Now, the next stage is, is that life will happen. And the next day, there could be another disaster. Yep. Or the next day, there could be another success. And for example, where this is the weirdness of our experience, on the day there's another success. So for example, one of her children might graduate from college. And on that day, she'll experience the loss of her husband all over again because he's not there to share that yep. graduation. It's that bittersweet feeling people talk e exactly. about. Exactly. And so if we give people the skills around self-forgiveness, we know that it's an ongoing and repetitive journey, mm. that it's a, it's a process that has iterations. It's like the leaves in a book, you know, we'll turn over another leaf and there'll be something happening on that book that is related to something else in the book. Mm. And we'll have to re, you know, respond to it in a new way that you know, is about new information, but also has reference to our previous experience. Yeah, because you, the, the, your example, I like it, like, you know, the graduation of your child, it's this happy event, but then you could get very much sucked into, oh, I didn't, you know, it's my fault this thing happened, rather than going, you know, look, I'm, I'm sad, sad yes. that that person's not here, yes. and reflecting on that pain and trying to be able to kind of yes. go, you know, look, it's okay, I've got this pain, I'm sad, but also the reason I'm sad is because I love them and they love them. And, you know, right. you know this kind of, uh, I guess, cognitive reframing is the yeah, way that, I would place right. it. But, but, yeah. but what, what I also say to people who've gone through this is that they can also celebrate the life of that person mm. in the life that is here now. <laughs> in that because of them, our son graduates today. They're not here in body, yeah. but they're here in an embodied way, in my experience, in my yeah. son's experience, you know, in the very DNA of my son, you know, the laugh and joy, the way my son looks like him on a good day. That person is here with us, but in another way. Yeah, I mean, and like I'm a fan of Yolanda, I think I mentioned before, but he yes. talks about rippling, which is the idea of the fear of death is somewhat abated by knowing that we ourselves may not be here, but we leave an effect on yes. the world. Yes. And, and, and I guess you're almost sort of arguing that, that but from not the, from the person who's afraid of death, but from the person who's 
seen the death happen. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, as I say, useful self-forgiveness. It's simple, but it's not easy. It requires work. That There are various surprises that will crop up because of the way in which our mind works mm. and the way in which our embodied experience works. But what I've found is that it works across a whole range of different experiences. And we're hearing in the conference today from Ken Packenham about a trans-diagnostic approach. Yeah. What I'll say is this is a trans-experiential approach. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, one of the things about the adverse childhood events experience is that there's been a lot of really good work done by the World Health Organization that is recognizing that for people who have had up to six adverse life events, and we're talking about things like experiencing war, experiencing abuse, experiencing you know, major family dysfunction, and so on. The more of those experiences that a child has, the more likely they're going to have late life disabilities of some form. Yeah, right. So we're talking about things like increased weight over the, the average of what's healthy for them. We're talking about things like addictions. We're talking about things like experiencing themselves being assaulted and yeah. so on. There's, there's just a whole litany of things that go on that have correlations to this experience of adverse childhood events. And unfortunately, the long-term studies have found that the lifespan of those people are likely to be decreased by up to 20 years. Yeah, right. So as a health psychologist, this is a really important experience. Yeah. And my particular theory, and I haven't done deep work in it, I've done a lot of practice work in it, and I've put it to my clients about this, is that the feelings that can be generated by self-hatred and self-disgust out of experience of these adverse childhood events are actually mobilising hormonal and physical symptoms within the person. Mm. So continuous arousal, yep. all sorts of uh, problems with immune function yep. arising out of this. So for example, I know there's good evidence with regards to the population with fibromyalgia mm -hmm. that there's correlations with adverse childhood events and particularly sexual abuse. Yeah. So there's something that's going on in this experience that's carrying on an embodied way. Yeah. And so I, I believe and this is my practice, I've used this probably with about 50 clients in my private practice, yep. and used these principles to address directly their experience of adverse childhood events, and seeing great remission of symptoms. Yeah, because it, I mean, just sort of to take that point, think about it, it's like, you know, if you're, you've, you've done something wrong at work, mm -hmm. and you're worried about that, you're, you're frustrated with yourself, you're concerned about your job, you're concerned about judgment, your manager, right? And you go and you speak to them, the physical state that you're in, there's a, there's a, there's a tension there. The people listening to this will have experienced that and, and they'll know that. And then when that manager says, no, look, that's okay, I fucked up too, or I've done this stuff, or look, look, it's probably not so good, but you know, what the response is a forgiveness response the physiological response there Absolutely. there's a physical and so it would make sense then if you like from a theoretical perspective it would make sense that you're carrying this around this self-hatred this mm. uh, self-critique that it then when that goes away then it's, it's it's the same relaxing response or exactly and so if we take your example if a person's been raised in a healthy family with 
you know, good parental relationships, maybe good sibling relationships, they're probably going to be far less likely to deeply blame themselves for an adverse work event. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's probably more likely that the people are going to say, well, geez, other people think I'm okay. I didn't think I was that bad. You know, I need to have it out with the boss. Yeah. Something like that. You know, might be a response. But let's say someone, you know, for example, has been adopted and then they've been adopted into an abusive family. So they've been rejected by their biological parents for whatever reason, even though, you know, there might have been a compassionate response by people who couldn't afford to raise the child, but nevertheless the child feels rejected and mm. then they're in an abusive situation where they never feel safe. Yeah. Can have a far different effect on the very same workplace event. Yeah. Where people can have a much deeper feeling of being traumatised and re-traumatised and a particular story playing in their head. Well, you know, they think I'm a fuck up, I fuck up at life, I fuck up everything. Yeah, and you consider that and driving behaviour in all sorts of exactly. uh, help-seeking ways, neurotic ways, rejecting ways, yes. all these kinds of and stuff. And also in issues about self-harm and suicide. Yeah. And, you know, particularly for men who aren't great at sharing their feelings, who aren't great at processing stuff, people who otherwise seem to have their act together are suddenly off. They've committed suicide in an impulsive way. Mm, mm. And who knows, you know, where, what is happening in that space. But my guess is, is that because of the, the rates of suicide for people with adverse childhood events, I'd say there's a, a good explanation for part of the rate of suicide around people not being able to properly process otherwise normal experiences in life. Yeah. Because they've got this burden that they're carrying and it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's the way that it gets maintained over time and then it becomes just this burden that people carry that they can't escape out of. Or, That's right. And I think even as a therapist, you can kind of see it and you can try and disrupt it. Mm. But people will drop out of therapy because what happens is you're messing up an established system. Correct. And I often think about it, it's like the, I don't know what a good metaphor is, but it's like sometimes you can stir that pot, mm -hmm. but if you haven't, if you don't know it well enough, then those that self-hatred can double or intensify. Yes. So you can go, oh, look, I, as a therapist, like this is what I'm going to do and this all makes a lot of sense and it's the right thing. But if you don't know the lay of the land well enough, yes. then that, that self-hatred can really come up. Yeah, and, you know, like it's, it's not this A to B to C to D scenario. It's very complex. That's right. It's, it's like zero to 10,000 bang. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. Do you... I mean, I, I, the way I would approach things is you've got to try and feel it out a little bit. Well, the interesting thing I've seen in therapy, and I, I expect this is the, the process with many, many therapists, it might only be four or five sessions in when you've established trust with people mm. that they'll in fact reveal what their real issues are. Mm -hmm. I always think it takes at least three sessions to know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the thing is... I think the reasons why it's taken three sessions to get to know what's going on is, in fact, it's taken three sessions for them to get to know you. Yeah. And whether you can be trusted. Yeah. And because, you know, we're asking people to, you know, reveal deep vulnerabilities. Yeah, I, I certainly, I had a stretch working and I must have been, I don't know what happened, mm. but I, this stretch 
of time within a couple of months where about four or five long-term clients, so long as in more than six months, yes. or about six months at least, all disclosed about the same time mm. histories of sexual assault mm-hmm. as, a, as a younger person. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know whether I was just attuned to it or what, but it, it is interesting and it really got me thinking about like, what's this process of why does this all happen at that time and you can be working on some stuff but there's there is this other thing coming on and then they've checked me out enough they want to they want to dip that toe in the water and they want to see what that response is and you know the temptation as a therapist go oh this is trauma okay we'll jump into you know this manualized treatment blah 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 which would be the completely wrong response which is this okay we need to test this out because because I would say, you know, the, the self-hatred component, the journey is the self-forgiveness bit that they need to get onto. Well, it, it is part of it, you know. I'm not saying it's a panacea for all issues, but I think it's a, a, a fundamental human challenge mm. that we are all challenged with this issue about baggage that we carry. But I'll just say with regards to your experience of it happening in succession quickly, I mean, we, we need to be aware of how much the process of seeking help has been destigmatised. And, you know, like the the Royal Commission's, the press support for victims of childhood abuse. There's a lot of people being stirred up to actually do stuff about their past, but I don't think we're still that well-equipped to deal with the torrent of stuff that's out there. No, no. And, uh, And I'll just say one other thing, is that... The reason why people don't forgive themselves works in some ways. Mm -hmm. So I'll say, for example, and this comes up very often in domestic violence, Mm -hmm. the person who forgives the violent offender too early without seeing change in the offender can also help facilitate further abuse, right? And it can be the same for ourselves. If we forgive ourselves without having done the work, we can continue to abuse ourselves in different ways. So forgiveness and self-forgiveness, as I said, is something that requires intention and work. And the reason why people have held this stance that we said earlier on, for some reason it works in some way. And people have to have a genuine, compelling reason as to why they should change. And we have to be able to offer people the work that can help them resolve this stuff. Fascinating. It's such an interesting thing. So where if people listening are interested in your kind of work or they want to, they're motivated by this kind of stuff, where should they be looking or what should they be looking well, for? Well, you may ask. <laughs> I'm just the eyes lit up then. <laughs> well, I'm, look, my, my thesis is online with, uh, through the Adelaide University Library. Mm-hmm. If you Google my name and the library, it'll probably come up. Mm-hmm. And so people can have a look at my thesis and its work. And it's written as a series of papers. Yep that each chapter is sort of self-contained. I could put yeah. them as a link That's in correct. the uh, podcast uh, yes. a description, actually. And there's lots of work of mine in terms of conference presentations that's also available. Yep. So I'm happy for people to access that. But I'm, I've just had an epiphany, yes. and I had to forgive myself about it, <laughs> is I've basically seen for the last seven years as social media as being the work of Satan. Oh, right. <laughs> because, you know, as you know, as a therapist, we see many, so many people damaged. Oh, yes, by absolutely. social media, right? Yeah. And I've really steered clear and, and stepped back. But I had 
been inspired by a friend who has a great YouTube channel in Canada. His name's Tim Gordon, and he does a lot of work on self-forgiveness. He's attended a conference, international conference, and he's gone back and he's run with my work in the Canadian community. Yeah, right. And he's doing great work, and he's really out there on social media, and I thought, as Shakespeare said, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. <laughs> yeah, well, that's so, it. And the, the power of the internet, social media, podcasts, I think, is not understood. I, I, I like podcasts as a, as a form yes. because people can listen to it by themselves. Yes. And they can educate them by themselves. Correct. And they can dip their toe in the water by themselves. Yes. And yes. we certainly, running this podcast, we've had... A number of people contact us yes. explaining that very thing for yes. us. Yes, and yeah, we're giving university level education through doing these podcasts yep. and making it freely available, which is great. Yep. So I'm, I'm going to actually be getting stuck into Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> Instagram. Over the next six months, I'll be doing that. But I have a website called vitallivingpsychology.com. Yep. Great. And people can have a look at that and can contact me through that if they want. And there's going to be some web links and so forth expanding through that. Well, we'll put all those things yeah. on the podcast description. So if you're listening, you can uh, have a look at that if you're interested in it. Okay, thank you so much. Hello. It's been an absolute pleasure. Fantastic, thank you.